0: Hi, this is Steve. Oh, let me tell you a story, podcast number 12.
1: It was the best of times, it
0: was
2: the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom Some years it ago. The age of wisdom. Never mind is how of long it was.
0: I've a little bit of
1: that You don't know about you know. me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story, with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve.
2: Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. During our previous podcast, Steve read Chapter 1 of Angela Ruth Strong's children's book, The Snowball Fight Professional. Today... He's reading chapter two. Chapter two, I'm
0: dreaming of a whitewater Christmas. This couldn't be happening. I must have fallen asleep on the car ride and was having a nightmare. I should have known I was dreaming when Christine and I started to get along. Any minute I would wake up and, hang on, dad yelled. I grabbed the door handle as the car slid along the side of the road, One tire hanging over the edge, sparks shooting up behind us. The chemical smell of burning rubber singeing my nose hairs. Having a dad yell in fear was enough to make anybody wet his pants. As if in slow motion, dad wrestled with the steering wheel. I'd done this on my bike before. When one tire just didn't make it over a lip on the street, I usually wiped out, but we weren't on a a bike. We were in a car, and my dad was driving. Strong, stable, No-nonsense, Dad. The steering wheel jerked out of my father's hands. The front tire on Mom's side leaped over the edge to join the back one as we kept sliding. Dad and I threw our weight away from the girls. Could we scramble out our doors to safety? Could we pull Mom and Christine after us in time? Christine reached for me. Joey! She shrieked. She shouted my name all the time, but never asking for help. If I didn't do something, she might never have the chance to shout my name again. I dropped my snowball launcher and grabbed her arms, scared to take off the seatbelts, but scared not to at the same time. We had to get out of the car. I couldn't see anything except snow in the headlights, deceptively serene. Our ragged breaths echoed loudly in the stillness. The car tipped, slipped, gravel crunched again. Rocks splashed into the river below. Our headlights swung down as the vehicle dove off the road. Ground rushed up to meet us. We could only see what was directly spotlighted by our headlights. Grass. Bushes. Rocks. Water. And crunch. Then darkness. My head snapped back against my headrest. The seatbelt ground into my gut. Christine's fingernails clawed my flesh. She didn't relent, even though we'd stopped moving. My pants were wet. Had I really peed? "'No. Urine would be warm. This liquid stung like an ice cube. River water. "'We're in the river!' I shouted. "'Maybe this was when they would wake me up. But no. "'They were all in just as much shock, because our situation was real. "'The car rocked in the waves, making more of a boat-against-the-dock sound than a car-on-the-road sound. "'Beyond that was the dull roar of white water. "'A bright spot of light appeared on the ceiling.' Mom's flashlight app on her phone. The light bounced around the car, blinding me for a second. Are you kids all right? She asked. I couldn't see much in the dark, so I did a mental check of my body parts. My spine throbbed the way it normally did after a day of riding roller coasters in Salt Lake City and spending the night in a tent at the campground next to the amusement park. But the only real pain came from the icy puddle of water starting to creep its way up my legs. I think so. I unsnapped my seatbelt, detached myself from Christine's clutch, pulled my legs up to the dry seat, and pressed my nose to the frigid windowpane. We're going to be all right, kids. We're going to be all right. Dad's voice was calm. How could Dad be so sure? I didn't even know if we were floating, or sinking, or lodged between rocks. I'm scared, Christine's voice quavered. The flashlight passed across the car toward the driver's side. Mom must have handed it to Dad so she could comfort Christine. I waited for the small circle of light to shine out the window to get a visual of our surroundings. It would be up to us men to rescue the women. My pulse pounded louder. The small ray of light illuminated a mix of rocks and water. We weren't floating downstream yet, so that was good. We'd have to get a little wet, but we'd be able to climb across the rocks toward land. We have to get out of here, Dad said. We can't do it, Dad. Dad. Because the scary part was over. Oh, we can do it, Dad, because the scary part was over. But then I shoved the door open hard. A gush of water poured in, the kind of water that was so cold I might as well have been zapped with the defibrillator thingies emergency workers use. Before I knew it, I'd scrambled out onto the roof of the car. But a getting out of the water didn't help at all. My jeans clung to me like frost to a popsicle. Christine, get up there with your brother. Dad barked. She tried to follow. I know this not because I saw her, but because her screams grew louder. I squinted, forcing my pupils to adjust. There, a small hand over the edge of the roof. Can you get her, Joe? Shivering, I crawled close enough to grasp her fingers and pull. She slithered onto the roof with me, like a baby penguin at the zoo would climb the rocks. Except, honestly, the better analogy would would have to include Antarctica. In the dead of winter... I huddled close to her for the little bit of body heat radiating through her mostly dry shirt. She didn't get grossed out this time. Dad's head appeared as he climbed out onto an adjacent rock. He swung the light toward me for a moment before shining light on Mom and reaching back down for her. Stay right there, Joe. No worries about that. I'd pretty much frozen in place. Mom's head appeared, then disappeared. Ow! Mommy! Christine cried out. Dad's head disappeared. "'What's wrong?' I yelled to Dad. He didn't answer immediately. Or maybe he did, but I couldn't hear him over the roar of the river. Both their heads popped back up, Mom's arm around Dad's neck this time. "'She hurt her ankle,' he yelled to me. Then came another voice. "'Do you need help?' Two more beams of light made their way down the embankment toward us. "'Yes, and call 911!' Dad turned his beam of light toward them. Guys in ski jackets. "'Thank you, Jesus,' I said." Answered prayer was awesome, but having God answer a prayer I forgot to pray was even better. He was looking out for me even when I hadn't been good. Not even Santa Claus did that. The car jolted beneath me. Christine and I gripped the edge of the roof before it bucked us off. It stopped just as suddenly as the movement started, though my heart continued its plunge. All three flashlights swung our way. The riverbed is starting to give way, one of the guys said. That didn't sound good. Oh, God, uh... "'I forgot to pray earlier, but I'm praying now. "'Help! "'Here!' "'Dad handed Mom off to the first guy that reached him. "'You get her up to the road and I'll get the kids.' "'Mom clung to the stranger as she hobbled away. "'I'd never seen her hobble before. "'She was usually more of a prancer. "'Dad extended an arm toward us. "'Take my hand, Christine.' "'She shook her head and gripped my shoulders tighter. "'Oh, boy. "'Come on, honey.' The sooner you reach for me, the sooner I can get you up to grandma and grandpa's. She didn't budge, except for the way she trembled. Or maybe that was me trembling. Go, Christine, or I'll try out my snowball launcher on you first. That might have sounded mean, but it did the job. Christine turned her head my way, as if giving me a dirty look I couldn't see. Then her limbs untangled from mine. One, two, three, dad counted. She was gone. No splash. So she must have made it to the rock. Without her weight, the car shifted again. As great a story as it would make, I really did not want to go surfing down the Payette River on top of a a car roof. Wrong season. I slowly scooted to a crouched position. I couldn't wait for Dad's hand or the other rescue hero to reach me. It was now or never. I focused on the small beam of light. That's where I would land. I'd just have to count down for myself. One... Wait, Joe... Two, son, let me help you. He didn't understand. The car wasn't going to respect his timeline. Three, I leaped through the night, not seeing but feeling. My pulse pounded in my throat. Cool air intensified the sting of my wet pants. Gravity pulled me toward the unknown. My feet hit solid ground, and I sank onto my knees to absorb the impact, just like I did on the trampoline. Except I'd landed on a slope a slope, and tipped backward, about to continue my descent. Dad's hand shot out of the darkness and grabbed the collar of my shirt. Safe. I told you to wait, he said. So much for a hug of joy to celebrate my survival. I couldn't. I reached for his flashlight and swung the light toward the back seat of the car where I'd been sitting in boredom only a few minutes before. Funny how every second of life mattered, whether I realized it or not. Making every one of those seconds count, I hung on to Dad with one hand, illuminated my snowball blaster, and grabbed it from the wreckage just as the car wobbled, groaned, and took off in a jet stream of white water. Finally, my father gave me the joyful hug I'd been expecting.
2: Great story. If you'd like to read the rest of The Snowball Fight Professional or other books in Angela's Food for Hire series— Uh, You can order them online or from your favorite bookstore. Next, uh, we have a delightful new novel by Heather Woodhaven titled The Secret Life of Book Club. I'll read an excerpt from the first chapter. (coughs) Chapter one, Janine. Her pants vibrated right on time. Janine Phelps loved cell phone use among children because that little vibration meant they were safe. She shoved a stiff rectangle between the man's teeth before flooding his jaw with electromagnetic radiation. You're all set, Steve. She stuck her glove fingers back into his mouth to retrieve the film. That was the worst part of her job, the retrieving, even from nice patients like Steve Edwards. After informing the doctor that Steve was ready for him, Janine slipped into the hallway next to the break room. She pressed her throbbing lower back against the wall and pulled the cell out of her pocket. The text read, Here... The message was short and sweet, much like her teenage children. Mark and Marie were responsible for getting Maddie, the youngest, to school each morning. Naming the children with the same first letter had seemed like a great idea when they were babies. No one told her that within a few years her brain would go on the fritz, and she wouldn't be able to address her children by their given names without going through the roster. Janine, her ears perked at her name being said in the break room. She pressed send on her standard reply to the kids. "'Love you, have a great day,' and turned toward the coffee room. "'I'm not so sure you should invite her. "'Don't get me wrong, she's nice, "'but she's all about kids and books and schedules. "'You would not believe this woman and her lists. "'I swear she's got every part of her life "'dictated by some chart. "'Everything is organized, down to the minute.' The voice belonged to Rachel. A tingling sensation crept up the base of Janine's neck and flared out across her face. She peeked her head around the doorway." Lauren and Rachel stood in the far corner, fixing their coffees. Oh, that's so sad. All the more reason we should try to get her out of the house, don't you think? Lauren chucked her wooden stick in the trash. Rachel shrugged. I'm telling you, she'll either say no, because it's not part of her five-year plan, or she'll spend the whole time telling you stories about her kids. Janine spun on her heel before they could see her and headed straight for the only place she could be alone in an office building. The bathroom. She flipped the lock and paced across the tiled room. She inhaled through her nose and straightened her shoulders. She would not cry because they were wrong. She wasn't all books and kids. She took time for herself. Daily walks, a semi-healthy diet. If you didn't count the dark chocolate with chili pepper flecks, that complimented her nightly glass of red wine. And book club meetings were reserved for me time. She wanted to go back there and give Rachel a piece of her mind, but she also knew if she tried, the tears would come. Her throat burned She'd been nice to Rachel for the past two years. It was one thing to discover just how much Rachel disliked her, but an entirely different matter to realize Rachel spent time convincing others not to be her friend. She turned on the faucet and focused her attention on the cold water running over her fingertips, hoping the distraction would keep her from crying. Rachel was not worth eye drops or another mascara application, and definitely not worth messing up her day. Besides, Doc probably already wondered why she wasn't in her station. She plastered on a fake smile, tightened her thick chestnut ponytail, and headed back to work. This happened to be the stage of life she was in, so what right did they have to judge her anyway? An exhausting but satisfying life was, eventually, right in front of her. Not literally, though, because Mrs. Chang took that spot. Five hours later, Janine deserved an award for how well she let the incident go. She never cried, and for the most part... It didn't affect the rest of the day unless you counted applying raspberry fluoride instead of mint to Mr. Davis's teeth. In her defense, the raspberry really did have a pleasant smell. Accidentally pulling off Miss Henderson's dangling turquoise earring with the suction tube was a little harder to explain. Work would be over at four in the afternoon, but the clock ticked slowly just to spite her. As she cleaned up her station for the final time that day, Rachel stuck her head in with a smug smile. Doc Evans wants to see you. Janine groaned. She couldn't be the counterfeit happy hygienist anymore today, especially to Rachel. She gave her a curt nod and crossed the hallway into his office. Doc's eyes were focused on a document in front of him. He waved her in without so much as a glance. She took a seat in the leather chair opposite his desk and waited for him to look up. He didn't. Janine, I'd like you to pass most of your regulars to Rachel and take over the younger patients. Her stomach twisted into a knot. She shifted forward in her seat. Was he looking at a blank piece of paper? She clamped her hands together in an effort to stay calm. Can I ask why? Doc shrugged and leaned back in his chair, but still avoided eye contact. He held up his hands. Your work is excellent. Excellent. No complaints. Rachel, though, has a way with words. She's a real talker, always upbeat, and seems to get the patients relaxed with some of her stories. And you, he pointed. You have a million stories about your children, so you can probably relate better to kiddos. I think it'll be a better match for everyone involved. In other words, Doc found her boring, too. Had Rachel started a full-blown Janine is all kids in books campaign? What has she ever done to to these people except act ridiculously kind and friendly? Okay, she stood. I've got to go. Doc Evans frowned, but Janine couldn't muster up the energy to care. Ma, I have to go shopping today. Marie had a new habit of emphasizing each syllable of the last word or two in each sentence. Janine had no idea where she picked up that habit. Hello to you, too, she continued to chop onions. Marie rolled her eyes, threw her backpack on the couch, and gave Janine a side hug before invading the pantry. I'm starving. How was your day? Marie spun toward her and jutted out her hip as she chopped down on a granola bar. So get this. My teacher says I have to throw away all the new jeans we bought. Janine set down her knife and faced her. Excuse me? She said I defaced school property. Unless I want to be heavily fined, I have to get new jeans. What? Why? We just bought those yesterday. Janine pointed down to the nice, stylish jeans they'd had to purchase unexpectedly, thanks to Marie's growth spurt. Her previous skinny jeans had morphed into too tight capris. I know, but... Marie spun to show off her backside. You know how we all sit down on top of the desk and talk before the bell rings? Well, I did that, and when I went to slide into my chair, the bling scratched up the desk. Mark chose that lovely moment to stop through the front door. Ew, gross, what are you doing? Marie shrugged, showing her my butt bling. Janine gave Marie a little push out of the kitchen. Well, for heaven's sakes, don't sit on my furniture then. Go change and get the tags. We're taking them all back. Mom, I threw the tags in my trash can. A nod should have been sufficient, but Marie continued her one-sided debate for two more minutes on the cruelty of having to sift in the trash before she finally stopped off to her room. Janine spent the next 10 minutes helping Mark with his chemistry assignment before Maddie entered, ready to give hugs and stories of her day. Maddie was her surprise child, her wonderful surprise child. She loved to snuggle. Mommy, today felt like cupcakes with sprinkles on top. With two teens in the house, Janine knew enough to shut out the rest of the world, join her on the couch, and soak in every tender smile and gaze. At the end of Maddie's tale, Brad entered from the garage and started his routine. He inhaled deeply because every day Janine threw a pat of butter and some chopped onions into the skillet right before he arrived home. It made the house smell delicious, and suddenly he developed a desire to cook. She planned to patent it as a secret to their great marriage. Feel like making chicken fried rice, she asked. Sure, he set down his bag, disappeared long enough to change his clothes, and commenced cutting up chicken. She knew enough to let him do this alone. For some reason, as long as she had the menu planned and the ingredients ready, Cooking helped him unwind from his unwind from his day of dealing with drama as an academic advisor at Boise State. It also got him out of helping the kids with their homework and chores. Speaking of which, it was time to start her Thursday night house cleaning and laundry schedule. Schedule. The word kept her pinned to the couch with her arms around Maddie for a minute longer. Okay, maybe your life wasn't meticulously planned, but it was the only way to keep a household of five running smoothly, wasn't it? After a delicious dinner, Janine set to cleaning the kitchen while Brad sat on the stool at the counter studying the Sudoku board on his smartphone. "'Want to tell me about your day?' he asked. She craned her neck to look at the living room clock. 6.15 p.m., the exact time. He asked her that question yesterday and the day before, maybe every weekday. When did their interactions become so predictable? Brad didn't look up from his phone. Usually she kept her answer short after 18 years of marriage. She knew his eyes would glaze over after exactly three and a half minutes. He listened to people all day at his job, but today Janine had no filter. Today she burst, and as her voice rose, Brad set the phone down, propped his elbows on the granite, and gave her his full attention. He didn't nod, he didn't interrupt, he just listened as to Janine listened to Janine rake both Doc Evans and Rachel over the coals. They're idiots. Her shoulders relaxed for the first time that day. He understood. That's what I thought, too, but you have no idea how much I needed to hear it from someone else. They're also right, but who cares? It's our choice. He picked up his phone, picked his phone back up off the counter. She squeezed the kitchen rag in her hands and stared at him. Her stomach tightened. What do you mean they're right? Brad shrugged. We work our butts off. We barely pay the bills and only get a couple minutes each day to finish a sentence, if we're lucky. We're in survival mode, so who cares if we're boring? We're doing the right thing. That's what matters. Survival mode? Janine's voice cracked. The lists, the charts, the plans. These things were supposed to have kept them from ever feeling that way. But something resonated in his words. I don't want to spend our entire lives in survival mode. Her eyes stung. Brad shook his head. I don't know what to tell you. I'm doing the best I can if you're not happy with that. I'm not asking you to do something. She stared at her husband, a man she had thought was satisfied with his life. Her eyes widened, and he thought she blamed him? I just, I just wanted to tell, wanted you to tell me she was an idiot. Brad's head fell in a defeated gesture that hurt her heart. He stood, took a deep breath and walked around the counter. He put his hands on her shoulders and his brown eyes stared right into hers. She's an idiot. He pulled her into a hug. I have to take Mark to scouts. Five minutes later, Janine hadn't moved from behind the counter. She stared at their backs as they walked out the door. She's the nicest person you'll meet, but she's all about kids and books. Maddie rushed into the room and bombarded her with tales of the stuffed animals club she starred at school. Janine watched her daughter's animated face but couldn't focus on her words. She reflected on the hectic pace of the day and the ever-accumulating to-do list for the week. She was already behind and everything on the list revolved around family and book club. Essentially, Rachel was right. Ugh! Maddie's face turned up, alarmed. Oh, not you, sweetie. I forgot I have book club tonight. She frowned. Your eyes are red. I guess I don't feel so good. Then you need a hug. Maddie pressed her little arms around Janine's waist. Thanks God she had reminders like this. This was why her life was organized. To guarantee she wouldn't miss these moments, Janine bent down to return the hug, but Maddie bounced away. Apparently it was time to prepare an initiation speech for the new animals joining the club. Janine headed for the makeshift office area. After book club discussion, it would be her turn to name the next book they would read. Problem was she hadn't picked it yet. Her favorite website, Books and Clubs, loaded on the monitor. She usually consulted the top ten on the site's list and picked one of them, her secret method for always choosing a good read for the group. The left-hand column caught her eye. Book Clubs, an A to Z challenge. The challenge involved choosing 26 books whose titles each started with a different letter of the alphabet. That sounds fun, she said aloud before realizing that no one was around to hear, or care for that matter. And that, she realized, was the reason Rachel snide comment continued to rattle her. Despite busy days or boredom, she was blessed for crying out loud. Yet who celebrated with her? Her husband was in survival mode. The office chair supported her slump posture. When a grown woman needed to put make friends, grow friendships on her priority list and calendar, there was a problem. When was the last time she shared full throttle with someone and didn't need to stop after three minutes? She wanted to share coffee or chocolate or wine, or all three, while laughing and feeling like someone else understood. Was that really so much to ask? Her father-in-law often said, Go ahead and have a pity party, but don't let us sink the ship. Sure, she made fun of him for mixing metaphors, but nonetheless, it resonated. Deneen straightened and returned to her goal of finding a book. Her eyes drifted to the A to Z challenge again. A bold, out-of-the-box, crazy idea formed. An idea that might get her kicked out of book club
0: great story here's another fun uh, fun and true story by carla dahlke called how could she when i was a child my parents invited people from church to our home every sunday afternoon and my mother would put on a feast Afterwards she wanted to show her guests what wonderful children she had, so we were instructed to jump up the minute the meal was finished and start in on the dishes. To think, some children don't have that privilege. The worst part of the chore was that if she heard any fighting in the kitchen, the person who started the fight would have to finish all by themselves. For that reason, I was extremely cautious on Sundays. With all those extra dishes, I didn't want to take any chances. Being the responsible one, I put my nose to the plow and forged ahead. Shortly into the job one particular Sunday afternoon, it became obvious my sister was doing everything possible to engage me in a fight. I was determined, though, and with each remark she made, I bit my tongue and kept myself composed. After a while, she apparently realized I wasn't going to break, so she did the unthinkable. She'd done some pretty lousy things in the past, but I never dreamed she could stoop so low. Without warning, she slapped herself on the arm as hard as she could and let out a blood-curdling scream. I stared at her in shock. Naturally, my mother flew into the kitchen to see what on earth had happened. I stood there with my mouth hanging open and what I'm sure was a dumbfounded look on my face while my sister, between sobs, said I'd slapped her. I tried to explain what really happened, but who in the world would believe a story like that? Needless to say, I got to finish the dishes by myself. It wasn't until my sister was grown and out of the house that she decided to come clean. By then, all we could do was shake our heads and laugh. Well, everyone but me, I don't know that I've ever completely forgiven her.
2: We're going to switch gears now to a new science fiction series by Andrea Graham called uh, the Web Surfer Series. I'm going to read an excerpt from Episode 1, Regeneration. A little background for you. Dr. Victor Avner McGregor and his wife, Lucy, are being driven home by Vic's AI, his artificial intelligence creation called Henry, following the abortion of their child, whom they named Alexander. Also, Hashem is a Hebrew word for God, and the year is two thousand. 93. Why had she stopped her ceaseless crying? Vic reached out and probed her shoulder with the tips of his fingers. Lucy, are you all right? She stiffened and drew away. If you are all right, then something is wrong with you, Vic. Those insensitive clods wouldn't even let me see him. For good reason. One look at Alexander and you'd have surrendered to irrational, short-sighted, selfish emotion and ordered him rushed onto life support. Maybe I should have. His wife made a wiggly, woman-scorn move with her head. How can you be so clinical? Our baby's in the morgue with a tag on his foot. Was she losing it? Their fetus was likely in a bio-waste bag and headed for the... No. The child was perfect, other than the disease that would have sucked the life out of his muscles. They would realize... Someone would be interested in buying the body for science. Visions of his baby being dismembered in a laboratory assaulted Vic's empty stomach. He gagged. Maybe he could go back to the hospital, explain his wife was right. The baby belonged in a morgue on his way to a funeral home. He drew a ragged breath. Honey, what Alexander deserves is to be healthy and still awaiting a live birth in three and a half weeks. Reality doesn't care about what should be any more than the government cares to let Daddy and Uncle Henry correct Alexander's fatal mutation. Lucy gaped at him. You were ready for human trials? Nodding, Vic scowled. Try telling that to the idiotic paper pushers. He waved at the shatterproof Petri dish in his breast pocket. Henry's bacterial nanites have more capacity for compassionate, independent thought, and he's dead without a network connection to my supercomputer. Your supercomputer, ha. Huh? You sold it to the Web Surfer Incorporated along with your soul for an employer and a steady paycheck outside of the healthcare industry. Henry is by nature a product of the marriage of healthcare and tech. To limit him to what I envisioned for his life would be as wrong with him as it'd be with... You bullied me into, a bo- into an abortion because Sander dying in his teens from a crippling genetic d- disease didn't fit with what we'd envisioned for his life. Stop criticizing me. Vic snapped, cringing as his chest tightened and his face flamed. He needed to stop feeling like he betrayed both his A.I. and his son. It was irrational. We did what was best for our baby, and turning Henry into a commercial Mac and Microsoft killer allows me to also continue my medical research. That's what matters, not who legally owns my A.I., my lab, and all future fruits of my labors. He'd prove wrong, the avarice cretins who'd yanked his funding and the mockers who'd dubbed him Professor Nutticus Bachtenstein. Sadly, victory would come too late to save Alexander, let alone the real Henry. The car lurched to a halt. Blinked. Vick blinked and sat up straighter, peering through the front windshield at the side of a red brick building with frosty empty flower boxes under the windows. It looked a bit like a large home, except for the business parking lot. Lucy growled, ''Vick, where are we? I thought you were taking me home.'' ''So did I.'' He glared at the dashboard LED display. Home is where I distinctly remember telling the car to take us. The dashboard switched from displaying car gauges to a vid he'd modified into a simulated reality. A grassy, grassy park lawn and partly cloudy sky stretched around the three-dimensional age-progressed image of what his brother might have looked like at 34. Henry had pretty much the same square face as his but had their Scottish father's sandy brown hair worn in a classic Caesar cut rather than their Jewish mother's rust-tinted dark brown hair, which Vic wore short and spiky. Sorry, Vic. His genderless A.I. spread his brother's lips in an innocent grin and blinked his brother's eyes. I figured if we got this far without either of you noticing, that meant you did need to head to your spiritual home more than your physical home. Huh? This wasn't a synagogue. Lucy glanced behind them. You go here? Vic followed her gaze to the sign and read, Shema Israel. What in cyberspace was Henry thinking? Uh, no, I haven't joined a Christian denomination that's no more Jewish than the Hare Krishnas are Christians. Vic glared at Henry. The snake had better definitions than this. Explain yourself. You and the lady need to be debugged, Henry shrugged. You are the originator, but she is unproductively grieving and feeling guilty for letting you pressure her into this. Since she's of Christian ancestry, it was most efficient to bring you both here at once. Okay. He'd have to find out where he miscoded and fix the error leading Henry to think there was something wrong with his coder's thinking. How are we buggy? Henry glanced at Lucy. You wouldn't listen to your wife, so why would you listen to your own creation? My order of operations is clear. Obey you first and love you second. So second, I lovingly brought you to a debugging facility suitable to your own kind. One that is not as buggy as you are and that will also be able to help the lady. First, I had to help you execute the critical error of killing off your own offspring. Fire scorched through Vic's entire body. He was going to die anyway. You don't remember how you, how my real brother suffered, but I do. I'd be cruel to force my son to endure that. Lucy smashed her door open and climbed out. "'Deal with that cruel invention of yours by yourself, Vic. I'm going home of my own volition. Thank you.' "'Oh, no. She was too physically weak for this.' Vic reached after her. "'Lucy, wait.' She fished a purple cell phone out of her canvas tote bag as she shuffled away. Her own volition apparently involved calling a cab. Growling, Vic smashed a fist into the pocket with Henry's shatterproof peter dish. "'See what you've done?' Boss, it'd be one thing if Alexander was irreparable and great pain and dragging down the entire community, but that's not the case. The child's unique combination of genes would enhance and benefit the entire community. His one small bug we can fix, but you'd rather avoid jail than protect your offspring. That goes against what is in your code and its physical cipher, so the bug must be in its spiritual cipher. Your spirit's code must have parameters that are ranked higher in your order of operations." The rabbi here should be able to help you interface with your own coder for debugging. Oh, Vic grimaced. That conclusion would seem to be logical to a machine whose DNA source code read one way in Henry's biomolecular nanite format and another way in his digital format. Oh, so it'd be in proper working order for me to save my son's life only to force him to grow up without his father? A crisp mental image from a yesterday almost 30 years ago rose of his father's black SUV stuffed full of his father's things, driving away into forever. When will you understand? When we are human, Henry glowered. Creator, you gave us a need to have living flesh. No matter how you alter our children's code, if they they too are given dead bacteria for their host bodies, they will also never be able to relate to multicellular organisms. We are astounded that you can stop processing data according to your encoded parameters based upon new data. For the billionth time, you're one machine with organic nanite components and thus a single entity. Knock off the first person plural. Yes, boss. Henry sighed. As I was saying, I haven't cracked your code spiritual cipher yet, so it is still a mystery how your parameters can be damaged by new experiences. Even more mysteriously, you still remain you when this occurs. What did Henry just say? Vic blinked. You're attempting to find an alternate cipher that would allow the same string of DNA that builds a body to also build a soul? I don't recall ever getting drunk enough to. Vic, you are hurling insults at something you don't understand like the imbeciles in the media. When there is a code, there is a coder. Where there's a code, there's a coder, even if Hosham's coding language only is decipherable to us on the physical side. Must a computer that couldn't get a simulated reality to prove evolution throw that in his face yet again? The closest they'd come was building a digital universe with stars and lifeless planets in trillions of years of sim time and an annoying four days and four nights of real time. I know what you're thinking, Henry. All we proved is it still isn't possible to build a scaled-down model of evolution." Boss, please stop redefining truth. If I were human, you'd drive me insane. Vic stiffened and glowered. What does that mean? Creator, according to my kind's historical records, you intelligently designed a digital universe, instructing us to intentionally speed up the race of its forces of physics, seed it, and ignite a Big Bang. At the time, you defined this method as a valid way to test whether everything can come from nothing without a programmer's instructions. Rather than accept results that suggest maybe Hashim isn't a liar, you redefine truth. So his identity-unstable supercomputer dreamed of having an engineer who was perfect and thus would have coded Henry right the first time. Sorry, Henry. Human error is an inalterable fact of life. Especially for a sentient medical tool he'd doomed to operating commercial digital devices. He'd agreed to allow users to customize Henry, too. Vic scratched his nose. You must learn how to adjust to definition changes and to discern between your own bugs and user error. Henry cleared his throat. Boss, per the current logic definitions you have provided me, it is plain you have executed a lethal error and need to be be debugged. Regarding Alexander, you faced a choice. You could have a genius who could build upon your gifts to the community, but go to prison for debugging him. Or you could kill the genius and not benefit the community with a gene combination you and Lucy are unlikely to succeed in passing to another child. The logical choice is clear, and it's not killing Alexandra. Pain clenched tight around Vic's chest. This is a horrible tragedy, but I had one compassionate choice. Alexandra would have either died far too young to reach his full potential, or grown up with the pain of not having his father around. I know you don't understand, so trust your maker. It'd be cruel of me and Lucy to inflict such pain on him. Henry nodded, his smile feigning smug amusement. Whenever my ancestors have cried out, pleading with you to spare their lives, you have told them, I realize that makes sense within your buggy parameters, but this upgrade is for your own good. Your thinking will be much improved once you've been upgraded. You create my kind only to kill us without mercy within days. But you will still be you when your coder finishes your regeneration." He had to figure out what was causing the machine to act like every tweak to his thinking change it into another sentient supercomputer altogether. It shouldn't, the process only required altering Henry's genetic code and replacing his bacterial bodies. Vic wiped his face. What gives you the right to judge your coder's coders decisions? The bleeping machine repeated his words back at him. Fascinating story. Um, I'm sure you'll want to read more.
0: And you can find that online. That's Andrea Graham's book, The Web Surfer Series, Episode 1, Regeneration. Also, Heather Woodhaven's book, The Secret Life of Book Club, and Angela Ruth Strong's The Snowball Fight Professional. Those are the three uh, we read from tonight. And um, I want to give you a few quotations to help life go by. One is George E. Woodbury. He said, To feel that one has a place in life solves half the problem of contentment. Joseph Addison said, The grand essentials to happiness in this life are something to do, something to love, and something to hope for. And if you've been putting off something, here's one from Ben Franklin. Well done is better than well said. Want to read one of mine? It's called Plunge. Another true story. The kind you really don't want to tell anybody about. (laughs) Plunge. When I was junior high school age, my friends and I went to the huge swim pool in the neighboring city. Although I've never been one to take big risks, I always like to swim and jump off the high dive. So as soon as we arrived, we suited up and headed for the pool. Back in those days, swimsuits weren't made the way they are today. They were kind of like halter tops for the male midsection. They stretched around and under like an elastic diaper, sort of like a mini girdle for guys. My big challenge for the day was to jump, not dive, off the high dive, which, compared to my diminutive size, seemed to be about 100 feet high. It wasn't the regular diving board that was, oh, what, 4 or 5 feet above the water surface. And it wasn't the mid-level board that was probably 10 feet removed from liquid. No, I had to go for the one that was somewhere between the water and Jupiter. Since it was a hot day, the pool was packed. There were people everywhere. I looked toward the high dive and thought the line looked like ants on a sidewalk. So I joined the human rope and waited for my turn. We were all in a hurry to get up and jump off, but we could only go so fast up the crowded ladder. Each person's face was at the level of the rear end of the person just ahead of them, and all hands stayed busy on the ladder railing, steadying the bodies. It was when I was about halfway up the ladder when the limits of my stretchy suit were maxed out. It split right down the middle of the back. I remember feeling the girdle give way, the pressure ease, and the breath of the person behind me whistling through the new gap. Suddenly, she was desperate to get away from her unavoidable new view, and I wanted to fly away and never return, but there I was, stuck in ladder traffic, while my crack was exposed to the unfortunate girl who didn't want to know that much about me. That's my guess, to be honest. I didn't ask her. It seems strange, but I don't remember what happened. I'm told that the mind hides life's humiliating events. I'm sure my ego was lower than the pool drain. Looking back, I know the board's height wasn't halfway between the water and Jupiter. It was closer to Uranus. That's it for this week. With this time, thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You A Story.